Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I am doing great today. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. I'm actually really psyched about Tiny Room. What a great online event. Uh, I've been having so much fun watching it, and I hope everyone else out there is having a great time as well. And I also want to just say thanks to James, Daniel, and Ryan for putting in all the effort to make it happen. I mean, this wouldn't be here without you guys. So wonderful job, and thanks a lot. Absolutely. And it was great to have it be hosted on Frisbee Guru. And again, yeah, super big thanks to James, Ryan, and Daniel. So who do we have on the docket for today, Randy? Well, today we are going to finish up our conversation with Skippy Jammer, and he's going to give his thoughts about some of the legends of the game. So enjoy. So what did you think when you first saw Donnie Rhodes and him exploding? Well, so I first saw Donnie Rhodes and he was just a punk kid um, out of L.A. I didn't know he was from anywhere else. He was just the new L.A. kid with uh, Pearlberg. An interesting kid. He seemed to be um, uh, a little bit shy. But again, you know, big crowds back then. You just, you know, you just reference it, saying hi, make sure that you're connecting with the new players. Next time I saw him, probably about a year later, I don't know why it took so long, but it did. And then I'm going, oh my God, that's that same scrawny kid, except now he's doing things that are completely, completely off the scale as to what is even possible. He would do this this thing where he'd swoop it behind his back and he's doing it on the sidelines while the, while the finals routine are going. I don't think he was even in the finals. So I'm watching him, I'm not even watching the finals at Santa Barbara, 1979 or 1980, something like that. And he would kick it just before it gets to the, to the ground and it would, the kick would go up the inside of his leg and all the way up his torso and up along his arm. So it was a roll. It was like almost a root roll that would go up and he'd do it every time. I just go, wow. It's like, I don't even know how that's possible. So then I go, okay, I'm going to keep track on this guy. And he went off like a rocket ship. He was clearly the best freestyler in the world, bar none. And I'm talking better than Joey, better than anybody. He just really had that game and that obsession and was able to apply himself in that way. The thing about Donnie, and this was also something that I, that I found to be very entertaining, was he knew that he could be intimidating. And so he was also a competitor, too. He was trying to cash out of these tournaments, not in a negative way, but he wanted to find ways to psych out his opponents. So he would he would ask you to jam like he'd come up to say you'd go up to, to Randy or Jake, one of you guys and said, hey, you know, do you want to jam? So you try to impress him. Right. You try to do a move. Going, OK, well, wait till I show him this move. And he'd go, oh, God, then goes over to him and he does something long and graceful and elegant. And it's just beautiful to watch. And you're just you're still kind of like going, what was that? Oh, it's back to me. Okay, well, you try to match it. Now you're trying to impress him. Bad move. You need to do it like Bill Wright had figured it out. Bill didn't never try to impress Donnie. He just did this. He played his game. Go, this is who I am. This, These are my moves. This is what I'm going to do. And so that's why him and Donnie were such good partners. I fell under the trap everybody else did. I tried to impress Donnie. That means you lose. Because in the end, I couldn't nail delay. I couldn't catch it. I couldn't tip it. I was just, I was the world's worst freestyler 
at the end of that jam and he goes, well, you know, I thought this guy was good and now I'm out of here. So he would do that to other people. And so I, I had to think about it and go, okay, well, he did that on purpose and I fell into that trap. So I would see him do it to other people. I go, oh, that's how that worked. Getting back to skids, it all came back in 86 when, um, or 87, I think it's 87, where Rick Castiglia, go, we're at the U.S. Open La Mirada, and Rick goes up to Donnie and goes, hey, have you seen Skippy do his, his skid stuff? Donnie goes, no, what is that? And he goes, oh, let's go jam. And he goes, Skippy, show Donnie your skid stuff. I have a one-on-one jam with Donnie. At the end of the jam, Donnie could not play. He was dropping it. He was trying to do skids. It completely took him out of character. That was my little revenge in the end. Yeah, so you went after him with technology. He said, I got the technology, kid. Don't mess around with me. Yeah, I mean, Donnie really did just like make that skyrocket from because I remember I saw him at Venice Green, you know, just kind of just an ordinary jammer. And then the next time I saw him, I was like, oh, my God, who is this? Yeah, and I thought he was, I mean, Joey is amazing too. So it's kind of hard to compare the two as who was better because they both had different things. I mean, there are so many great players. I actually think Chipper Bro Bell is in the discussion as one of the best players as well. I mean, just Donnie had that special sauce that you just wanted to keep your eye on him, watch him because he was so cool. He was beyond everybody else. And that's what everybody had to work hard for. He was what we had to aspire to with Joey. What happened with Joey was, was he had the capacity of developing an enormous or wire an enormous repertoire of moves. And so when he was peaking, when he was hitting his peak, then he had such a deep point of reference that no matter what the angle, what the throw, what the spin, whatever the conditions, he had 50 combinations that he could do off of that throw and he could do and he had them all wired at the same time and that was that spontaneous period of his life and that's when he was really peaking uh, i think the best example of that was the 87 fort collins routine with him and chipper bro where they you know they didn't have anything planned out that was completely spontaneous so well speaking of chipper what were your what are your thoughts about his game so i was first introduced to chipper bro in 1980 can't remember who introduced me, but it, we were there. We were going down to the Rose Bowl tournament, and there was a there was a hat jam, a hat tournament at Palm Park. And somebody goes, "Hey, uh, have you seen this new kid? His name's Chipper Bro." Um, something to the effect of, "Hey, Chipper, show show Skippy or show Kevin um, that move that you're working on." And he pops into um, uh, what I called a fibrosis delay at the time, uh, monster delay. So he pops this monster delay and he's just freezing. And I'm just going, wow, the guy's it's like Gumby. And so I remembered him from, from that because nobody else was doing monster fibrosis, as it was also called. So I remembered him. And then whenever I'd go down to Santa Barbara, he was jamming. He was getting better. He had the win game. Um, he had the solid counter game. But he had the prototypical freestyle body and um, he's one of those guys that was like he was created in a bio rad laboratory where they're going okay we want the, the legs to be this long the arms to be this long and so this is this is our proto jammer and we're going to call him chipper bro bell and we're just going to plop him down on on the most perfect place to jam in the whole world palm park and see how he does and so that's how it came out in the end is almost a perfect freestyler so I know that you saw Dave Lewis in his early days. Can you talk a little bit about seeing him and his development and what you think? 
So the UFOs had an ultimate team, and we traveled to tournaments. It was really fun. We enjoyed doing it. Evan David David was on it. And uh, we used to play a, a team uh, every weekend, every Saturday from Marin, just south of Sonoma. And they called themselves the Friends of Gravity, the Fog, the Marin Fog. Um, so they'd come up and... Um, they had these two kids who were on the cross country team. I believe they were on the cross country team so they could run all day. There's no way that you could cover these guys because they just, they had legs and they could run. And one of them was Dave Lewis. He was, I don't know, 16, 17 years old. Another was um, uh, one of his best friends called Angus Wagner. And so Angus and Dave Lewis would stick around after the, after the, the game. And then Evan and I would start jamming. So Dave, he, he started jamming, back home and he was obsessed with it he was playing all the time and so i would show him a new move i go hey dave here's what i'm working on here's like this juice combination or 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 some you know some move that was that was new to me that i again i just figured out and i want to show it to this kid and he'd take it home with him the next saturday he'd already mastered it so i started running out of moves i go oh my god this kid he's like just 16 years old and he's doing all of my moves and he's doing them better than i am then Dave Lewis goes down to Santa Barbara and he stops playing. Um, he's so skilled with music and with guitar that he went on a different trajectory. And luckily for all of us, he came back to it. And and boy, when he came back, then it showed what that potential that that I saw early on, and it just he exploded. But I saw that early on. There was no question that he was going to be an incredible freestyler because he had the focus for it, he had the body for it, and he had the the temperament for it. So how about uh, Dave Schiller? Did you have any interactions with him in his early days? So I mentioned me trying to, quote unquote, Michael Jordan my game or, you know, become more turbo, uh, flying all over the place, um, using space more creatively and greater passion. And so I was at a tournament in Fort Collins. Uh, there's young Dave Schiller and young Bob Coleman, and they've been mentored by Donnie Rhodes. So um, th- he was their maxim, if you will, and Joey to a great degree as well. So that was their ideal. Um, Alan Elliott's another one that I'm sure that they looked up to. Those, those people are very, um, they're very restricted in that they don't do a whole lot of movement. They're going to move, I don't know, a few yards around. It's not going to be, it's not going to be charging all over the field. It's all, a very vertical game, a lot of center work. And so I was I was completely flourishing with this turbo skid technology stuff and turbo rolls and Calavera stuff. And so got into a jam with these two guys. And I was doing that game with their game. <clears throat> Did this run and we'd been playing for a while. I was completely shredding. And I felt it just crack on a foot brush to save it. It comes up. I do a big turbo Calaveras roll and have a huge crash and burn guidance. And I turn around. I look at both of them. I found where the crack was on the rim. And I ripped the disc in half. I spike it right at their feet and said, and that's how you jam. And from that point forward, then Dave goes, oh, my God. Him and Bob are going, what was that? So I'm proud to say that I had a very positive influence on both of those guys, but certainly Dave Schiller. So Dave Schiller was playing, I can't remember who he was playing with, but it was a co-op routine in Texas um, at um, one of the more recent American Opens. And he did exactly what you just described. He kick brushed it, the disc cracked. He was in the routine, right? And the disc cracked, he rips it, slams it down, and it goes and gets another Ooh. disc and they keep going. <laughs> and now I know where he got that from. <laughs> So we're talking about, you know, players of the past and, and great players. So, Scapey, who do you think 
is a player that's been forgotten, a player you thought that was one of the best of that generation that you never hear about anymore? And, and what made them so good? Um, well, Peck Roscoe is one. Or Peck Roscoe, he was, he's an extraordinary freestyler. Just, you know, having jammed with him, um, having watched him, seeing videos of him, he's somebody that, you know, if he would have if he would have stuck with competition and done it for some of the reasons that we were describing earlier, if he could have found a way to have that that open mindset and, and have fun w- within a competitive environment, then he would have been on a short list of greatest jammers of all time. So he's one. I think a lot of people have forgotten about how great um, Jim Schmall, uh, Benson, and certainly Deaton Mitchell were. Those first time I saw those guys was Fort Collins, '84 um, maybe, and I had never heard of them. I literally had, you know, I'm sure I saw them on a on a result sheet, but I didn't know who they were. It's like you know, some something from the deep bayou that, that I can't even comprehend. So when I first saw them, they do they did that move where they do the double hop over into the behind the back freeze, but now it's so out of context that I don't even know how they got to that position, let alone to keep it there, and they can do it every time. So their level of skill was so much higher than anybody else I had ever seen. And what was amazing was, how have I never even heard of these guys? Is there more behind you? And yeah, there, there actually was. There was like I mentioned, Pat Carrasco and Daryl Allen. Those guys were amazing, the whole scene down there. So I think a lot of the Bayou thing is doesn't get full credit like it like it should, because those guys were amazing. Yeah, I concur. So, Skippy, were you part of starting the FPA? No, I wasn't. I was an active player um, at the time. That was Dave Marini, and I believe if I get this um, chronology correct, and he was just starting to go to. Uh, graduate school to work on his law degree and his focus was on um, monopoly systems, corporate monopolies, I believe. And so he was, um, that was, I'm not sure if that was uh, a product of his frustration with um, how heavy handed uh, or draconian whammo was. Um, But that was a reaction certainly. And so he's the one who started crafting that out of Rochester and then um, Bill and the Coloradicals won the Rose Bowl in 1980 to coincide with the timing of that. So um, I think Bill was one of the original backers of it, um, the Coloradical guys. And then also um, around that time is when the Sky Styler uh, was introduced. And that was another big change. So the Sky Styler coming on board is the, the, almost the de facto um uh, freestyle disc and then the new um uh, fpa tour uh, uh going across the country then that became a cool thing in and of itself it's players run uh, we can play with sky stylers there you don't have to play with those big whammo lids um so um that was all the, the advent of the fpa was during the early 80s and it was it was limited at the start but there was so much passion behind it and so much interest that that's really what carried the day. It was able to go through some down cycles, some tournaments like uh, there was a big tournament down in Florida that didn't happen. It was able to roll right past that, even though that was it could have been a tragedy. It was like in the end, it was just a blip on the radar. And and all of the positivity that came out of people's enthusiasm and love for play, that's what really carried the day and was able to take um, the FPA from those fledgling simplistic beginnings to expanding into what's now a global phenomenon. 
Yeah, and if I recall, Bill was the was the the executive director, and you were the competition director for a lot of years, right? Well, so so once Marini stepped down to um, again. I don't know if he started practicing law or or, uh, or went into it um, or, or became a, a, a pastor. I, I'm not sure what happened with him. I just know that he left. And then um, Bill Wright was the go-to guy. He had just started to store the Wright life. So he was able to uh, to house a lot of that. Bill's, uh, Bill's skill set didn't lend itself perfectly to the competition side of things where mine did. So I was the intramural director at Sonoma, Sonoma State and then later at UC Santa Cruz. So I, I enjoyed sticking my nose in the middle of a competition, figuring it out, doing, doing the analytics of it, presenting it, perfecting it, working on those nuts and bolts of it, analyzing it, doing all of that kind of stuff. I loved the geek side of it. And so I really enjoyed it. And so that was more of a natural mindset for me. Bill and I would go to a tournament and he goes, oh my God, thank God you're here. Now, here's all the stuff that, that I wasn't able to get to. Can, can you do all this? I go, oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll do all of the pools. I'll do all of the judges and the, and the judging sheets. So that was my skill set. And Bill and I worked as a great team together during all those years. Felt very comfortable together. I think there's a lot of the history of the FPA that isn't really recorded anywhere. So it's kind of cool to talk to you about it. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're right. I think it's mostly a narrative history and mm-hmm. something about after a couple pints of beer when we're at a party at a tournament. Yeah. You know, you speak of, uh, you know, the competition director and coming up with the pools. Uh, I know all that didn't always go smoothly. So uh, amazing that you were able to continue doing that and you enjoyed it. Well, I had a system. Uh, it wasn't a public system. It's just some something that I used internally were you know recent results i kept a log of all of the recent results and uh, believe it or not my point system for um for, i had a point system and you get a point for every former world champion that you beat so that was my point system so if you were an underdog and you're breaking seed and you beat um i don't know um you beat joey in a routine then you get a point for that you beat richie schmitz you get a point for that you know you beat roger meyer you get a point for that be Richie Bartle, same kind of thing. And so that, so I would use that. And that was one of my methods. Yeah. I can remember many heated moments of people looking at the pools and going, I don't think I should be in that pool or I got, I should be higher. Or I should, you know, it's just endless. Right. But what's crazy is that it still happens today. So it, it's never going to go and, away. And, and I guess my mindset, um, certainly during that whole process was I was looking at it at the macro level. Um, I was looking at it. Now, I know you're complaining, but this actually works and it's fine. Uh, I suggest you break seed. So, you know, bust seed and then come back to me and we'll talk after that. Yeah. Well, that's where I learned my saying, you know what, just put me in the hardest pool. I got to beat you anyways. Yes, Jake, I know you're aware of my saying, put me in the hardest pool because I got to beat you anyway. So I've never really heard your thoughts about seating and where you've been put in a pool. So have you ever had any disconsent or questions about how you were seated in a tournament? Um, not really. You know, it's interesting. I remember as a new player, not even questioning why I was in what pool and when I would play. I just looked at the list and went up when it was my turn and didn't really think about it. And then I remember kind of growing in the sport and hearing other people complain about, well, I should be in this pool and that's the hard pool. And 
I don't know. It took me a really long time to even understand why it mattered. I just figured I got to win. It's about my performance and it doesn't really matter where I get seated. I'm just going to go do the best that I can do. And that was always my attitude, I guess. That's interesting to hear your thoughts about that, because as you are saying, as you first entered the sport, you didn't even really think about seating. But as you got more involved and the stakes maybe got higher, became a little bit more aware of it, but it still didn't really impact you. You didn't really feel like you were getting boosted or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I look at it where there's so many things that happen in the world that I can't control that I want to be focused on the thing that I can control. And what that is, is how well I perform when I go out on the field. And so I don't want to get distracted by whether I got put in the hard pool or the easy pool or boost in the, in the pool decision or even by the judges. You know, I just want to go out there and do my best. And so I try not to pay attention to that, I guess. Yeah, that's always been my point of view and really well put. I just I just feel like that's a distraction. Like just focus on what you can control, focus on the routine and, you know, let the chips fall where they fall. Totally agree. Um, well, with that, I just want to say again, special thanks to James, Daniel and Ryan for hosting the tiny room. And uh, yeah, it's been really awesome. Yeah, indeed. And on that note, Jake, I will talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, Shooting the Frisbees, and live streaming freestyle frisbee.